Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Mason. Our show is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week we feature fascinating conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction. We talk with those authors about their latest work. Vampires are the topic of the day. Christopher Farnsworth asks an interesting question today on our show. What if the President of the United States had a vampire? Read his novel Blood Oath, published by G.P. Putnam & Sons, to get the action-packed answer. Want to know more about vampires and the source of the legend? Well, Michael Sims tells all in Dracula's Guest, a connoisseur's collection of Victorian vampire stories, published by Walker and Sons. Christopher Farnsworth graduated from the College of Idaho. He has a BA in literature and history. He has a double major. He worked as an investigative reporter and a business reporter. His work has appeared in New Republic, Washington Monthly, The New York Post, and E! Online. And he's also a screenwriter. Chris is with us today to talk about his intriguing, absolutely action-packed novel, Blood Oath. Chris, welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I really appreciate being here. Well, the first thing I think we need to do is to clue the listeners in just a little bit. Let's give them sort of an overview of what Blood Oath is about because it is so intriguing and clever. Oh, thank you. Um, It's very simply put, it's about a vampire who works for the president and has for over 140 years. Um, the idea basically is that there's uh, a secret agent uh, who's essentially passed down uh, through the years to everyone who inhabits the Oval Office, and he just happens to be a vampire. Uh, and he f- battles the 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 darkness and the evils that uh, everybody in the nice, bright, daylight world of the American dream n- never has to deal with. And Cade, Nathaniel Cade is his name. Mm-hmm. Nathaniel Cade is not one of those cuddly, romantic, I'd like to run away with you vampire characters. He's really vampire all the way. Describe him a little right. bit. Right. He's not someone you would really trust your teenage daughter oh, <laughs> around. Oh, no. Uh, and not for any romantic reasons. Cade is a predator. He's. I wanted to get back to the idea of vampires as uh, dark and frightening, because when I was uh, a little kid, uh, you know, I would have told you I didn't like vampires. I mean, I read all the comic books and saw all the movies, uh, the universal horror uh, films, the hammer horror films. Um, but to me, vampires were always just scary, and I wanted to get to the idea of a vampire as an apex predator, something that's built to prey on humans. And that's why Cade is really so good at his job. He's 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 out there as pretty much the only line of defense against a bunch of really frightening things, and he has to be just as frightening or worse. The setup for Nathaniel Cade, this is amazing to me. You read a true incident that happened during the Andrew Johnson presidency and with this fertile imagination of yours came up with Nathaniel Cade. 
tell our listeners a little bit. Let's give them the history because I sure. couldn't believe this. When you, I mean, you and I have talked. I interviewed you on the Conversations Cafe right. uh, TV show. And when we started to talk about this, and I read this when I was doing the interview, I thought, what? So this incident was really happened. Right. This is, uh, yeah, this is a... Um one of those little weird quirky things in American history that um, just sort of crops up here and there and then gets pushed to the side. But in 1867, uh, Andrew Johnson uh, reportedly pardoned a man who was accused of killing two of his crewmates on a whaling vessel out of Boston and drinking their blood. And uh, there's no record of why he pardoned this man. Johnson was the president who followed Lincoln, and he wasn't very popular. Um, there, and he didn't leave a lot of uh, didn't leave a lot of papers or uh, explanations. Um, he's mainly just known as the guy who was impeached uh, long before Bill Clinton. Um, but I uh, and I read about this in a book uh, by uh, a researcher named uh, Robert Damon Schneck, and. Um, there's no real answer to it, but I just I was much more intrigued in in the idea. I was like, well, what would a president pardon a vampire for? What would a president do with a vampire? And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, there's really a lot. <laughs> there's a lot that would come in a vampire would come in handy for. Um, I imagine President Obama would love to have a vampire right now to deal with uh, BP. But, <laughs> I would imagine you're absolutely right. Yeah. We could send him down with a big cork and yeah. he could just put <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I think he'd be I think he'd be much much more effective with the executives right now. I, I think, think he might be too. We might be getting a little bit more response from them. Yes. And uh I think that that's, you know, I think that there's it just became a really rich idea to me. And you know, the idea of a a paranormal operative for the working for the government isn't necessarily new, but I hadn't really seen anybody do a secret agent who was a vampire before, and it just seemed like such an obvious fit. Um, you know, it's, I mean, on 24, Jack Bauer has been killed and brought back to life like five or six times. So <laughs> he's he's got to be at least partially undead. Hey, uh, Daniel Cade is a much more interesting character to me than Jack Bauer. <laughs> I have to tell you that. I mean, I know 24 has been terribly successful, but this is so intriguing. And it's intriguing exactly for the reasons that you just gave. But we have to also include in this setup, why doesn't Cade attack the president or anyone else? Why does he? Why is he bound to right. the president and how that happened? I thought it was just genius that you brought in Marie Laveau, who is the voodoo priestess from uh, New Orleans. To right. Uh, he's given. He's essentially given a choice. He can either... Uh, he can either die uh, and be uh, be killed, or he can uh, he can take a blood oath. And to make sure that he will actually follow the blood oath, um, Johnson recruits Marie Laveau, who is, as you said, the the very famous uh, voodoo queen of New Orleans. And she seals it uh, by binding Cade's blood with that of Abraham Lincoln, which is still on the bullet that uh, that killed Lincoln. And so then he's he's bound by the blood oath to the to the Oval Office to protect every in, uh, every occupant of the Oval Office and all of the officers appointed by him, and also to defend the United States and the Constitution. And it's uh, it's ironclad. There's no way around. He can avoid 
obeying a lawful order from one of these people. Because he, there are consequences for him if he does. Right. Yeah, it's incredibly painful. He goes into seizures, um, but also he agreed to this. This is, you know, this is a matter of honor for him as well. Uh, and deep down, Cade, though he's no longer human, is still a patriot. He still believes in the United States. Um, he's got a very, uh, very almost masochistic view of himself. He doesn't like what he's become. And he has a lot of contempt for it, but he also has a lot of contempt for humanity. Uh, it's it's it ain't easy being Cade. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got the new kid on the block, as it were. His handler has been uh, an agent named Griffin for a long right. time, and Griffin has in this novel hands over the reins to the new guy Zach Barrows, and and Zach is not exactly excited, thrilled, or up for this job. No, Zach, I mean, Griff has been Cade's handler for longer than any of the others. Um, he's been with him since the Nixon administration, and uh, he was a former FBI agent, former military man. Uh, and the fact that he survived that long when, most, when some of Cade's handlers haven't even lasted a day is a testament to how skilled he was himself. The thing is, uh, Zach Barrows is... He's a politician. He's he's never been in the military, never been in law enforcement. He's uh, deputy director of White House Affairs. And for some reason, the president plucks him out of this, this stratospheric rise to power that he sees himself on and puts him in a basement with a vampire. He thinks it's punishment because I believe he's been, if you'll pardon the expression, intimate with the president's daughter. Right, right. He was caught <laughs> by the Secret Service with the president's daughter uh, in the uh, Lincoln bedroom. And uh, he thinks he's being punished, but it's actually it's a lot deeper than that. And for some reason, the president decides that the that Cade needs a politician on his side, someone who can navigate the really increasingly murky waters of politics. Um, and he feels that that's a more important skill set at this juncture in Cade's career than uh, being able to use a gun or, you know, hand to hand combat. Kate is there to be the tough guy, and Zach is there to handle uh, handle all of the uh, hidden agendas of Washington, D.C. Because it does get messy. I mean, it yeah. really does get very, very messy. This we, We've not made this novel sound as action-packed as it has <laughs> but I, you need to do the setup so that people understand who these characters are, because this is an important piece. Right. One right. of the things that I absolutely love, there you have a quote almost at the beginning of every chapter. Mm -hmm. Some of the quotes are uh, from sources, real sources. And then you'll see the quotes that say, from the briefing book, codename Nightmare Pet. Right. Well, I, was trying to, I was trying to imagine what it would be like if a bunch of government scientists got their hands on a vampire, and they would, you know, they would have something that they could dissect that would sit there on the table quietly more or less, while they, you know, carved it up, and then it would it would get up off the table and, and go about its business again. <laughs> Put itself back together. Right. And, and I love this. The first time you mention this is in Chapter 4. And after you have briefing book, codename Nightmare Pet, there's a parenthesis, and it says, eyes only, exclamation point, classified, right. above top secret, per executive order, 13292. That, to me, is absolutely a stroke of genius.
genius on your part because it gives everything just that smack of reality that makes people go, huh? <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been uh, I've been fascinated by the paranormal and conspiracy theories for almost as long as I can remember. And there are a lot of, you know, documents like that out there floating on the Internet, floating in books. Um, and they just, some of them do have that real look of being authentic and that, that, that little touch of authenticity. Somebody, whoever put them together, if they're not real, and most of them are not, uh, knew how to make them look real. And that always just, that always struck me in my head. Also, I, you know, when I was, uh, uh, a young, a young uh, debate geek. I was always reading government documents and always looking into le- uh, legislative reports and everything. And the the syntax and the the idea just sort of sticks with you. The current threat is from a Dr. Frankenstein-like character named Dr. Johann Conrad. All right, Conrad was. Uh, Conrad's based on an actual historical figure named uh, Johann Conrad de Pell. And de Pell, is, um, de Pell is believed by some people to be the actual inspiration for Frankenstein. He was born in Castle Frankenstein in Germany. He was an alchemist, and he was known to dig up corpses and um, was believed to experiment on them. And uh, he signed his letters uh, Frankensteinesis, uh, which means from Frankenstein. Uh, and um, I just I just thought it was an inter- another interesting piece of history to be able to throw in there. Um, Conrad, of course, is is supposed to be the actual Doctor Frankenstein. He's actually supposed to be the guy, and he's the guy who uh, who discovered the secret of a mortal life, uh, but at uh, cost of his own soul. And oh, what a villain! created with this guy. I mean, he does things all through this novel. And there are a couple scenes I just found myself gulping at some of the things that he did because he takes advantage of the fact that in our society, aging is not particularly valued. Right, right. He's Yeah, he's found, I think, his perfect niche in uh, in 21st century America. He's become a plastic surgeon uh, to the stars. He, he works in, in Los Angeles and he promises, uh, people eternal youth. Um, and they'll do anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's made him a very wealthy and very successful guy. And, uh, the thing is, Kate, uh, the thing is, uh, Conrad has been alive for so long that he no longer thinks of himself as human. He's much older even than Cade and he doesn't see humans, uh, in any kind of, uh, relation anymore. He doesn't see them as part of the family anymore. He thinks of himself at at best as a very, very distant, distant uncle. And Kate and Conrad have been adversaries for a long time. This yeah. is not a new they know one another and they know one another well. Right. And they they despise one another. Uh with Conrad it's very simple. He's afraid of Cade and uh should be. Cade because Cade despises him. Cade despises him because he sees this predator of humanity and it's a little uncomfortably close for him but where he still feels he has some kind of moral core where he feels that he at least has something tethering him um conrad has none of that conrad has no fear of anything uh except cade and conrad has sort of joined forces with uh, some of the al-qaeda-like um muslim uh, united states hating forces 
Right. And right. they're involved in, in just a horrible plot that we watch unfold throughout the novel. And there's a climactic um, scene where uh, an attack happens that, wow, I mean, <laughs> that's, I can't. Right, we don't want to give away oh, no, for no, the spoilers, no, but um, away, but wow. But yeah, I I, also, I I thought that this would be a really good way to talk about uh, all of the anxieties that are that are beating up on us today. We have so many things we're frightened of. Um, the war on terror is just such an unbelievable, omnipresent uh, pressure on our lives, and I thought it would be interesting to turn the war on terror into the war on horror. I wanted to see. You know, I wanted to give the terrorists something they could be really frightened of, um, at least in fiction, because it is, you know, in the end, it's still about uh, a vampire fighting uh, Frankenstein and werewolves and monsters. Um, <laughs> right. And it's, uh, you know, there's uh, the main thing. I wanted to make it entertaining and I wanted to make it interesting, but I also wanted to be able to look at all of the stuff that scares us and hopefully create a, a hero who was scarier than all of that put together. A hero who's an anti-hero who's a hero. It's a very right. I mean, you. This novel is just. It's so much fun. It's such a terrific thrill ride, and the character of Nathaniel Cade is a terrific character. And I grew to like Zach Burroughs. The more the more I read about, the more I read him. I I I, I didn't like him at first because oh. not you don't you don't. You're not, yeah, and yeah, he's he's exactly he's that smart ass kid who always has the answers. Exactly. Um, and yeah, nobody nobody likes that guy. <laughs> and but you like him. I mean, he does some things in the novel, and he's put through through some tests in the novel. And uh, you did a really nice job with Barrows. I really enjoyed him. But there's also a little tiny subplot uh, with the company, and so we have this sort of shadow uh, company that runs through this with Helen Holt and Reyes and Ken and Control. And that's sort of humming along in the background. This is It's a complicated plot, but you did a masterful job of taking all of these segments and weaving them together and leaving us with an ending that sets us up on tether hooks for, hopefully, the next Nathaniel <laughs> Cade and yep. Zach Barrow's novel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's uh, I plan on it being a series. Um, the second book is definitely coming out next year. I'm in rewrites on it right now, uh, and yeah, I hope it's going to be a, a very long, uh, a long series. Um, I've got ideas for at least ten, uh, a, a story, ten books that would involve Cade. Oh, I and, can't wait. No, thank you, and I mean, yeah, thank you so much for the kind words. That's really. That, well, I've uh, been raving at you ever since you and I sat down and started right. talking to each other <laughs> from the beginning, and I don't normally do this. I mean, I choose books. This radio show is all about books that attract my attention for some reason. And I don't normally uh, rave to authors, but I just really enjoyed this. And oh, thank you. I, I'm an action thriller person. I'm a mystery person. And because you have come up with something that is unique and individual and I liked the character's and I like the plot, and I like your writing. It's just so much fun. I hope the listeners can get some sort of flavor for really what a terrific book this is. If they want to know more about you, want to know more about Blood Oath, want to know more about Nathaniel or Zach, is there a website, Chris, that they can go to? 
Right. Uh, absolutely. There's uh, presidentsvampire.com, which includes uh, the first chapter of the book uh, so that they can sample it and decide for themselves. And it also – and uh, with there's also uh, brief, materials from the briefing book and uh, reviews, uh, interviews, things like that. Um, and also my personal website is ChristopherFarnsworth.com. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for all the, the kind words. It's just a, a massive, massive compliment, and I really appreciate it. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Michael Sims is an internationally acclaimed nonfiction author, journalist, editor, and speaker, although he's written about everything from watershed ecology to Victorian crime fiction, his unique turf is the borderland where the human imagination responds to the natural world. Michael's essays, articles, reviews, and book excerpts have appeared in many periodicals, including Orion, American Archaeology, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, Chronicle of Higher Education, Medical Anthology Quarterly, England's New Statesman, Australia's Financial Review, and alternative weeklies from Charleston to Honolulu. Now, Michael's with us today to talk about the most fascinating new book that he's written. It's called Dracula's Guest, a connoisseur's collection of Victorian vampire stories. Michael, Thank you so much for being our guest today. I can't wait to talk about this book. Uh, thank you. I had a great time doing that book. Well, you know, you and I were talking about this before we started to record, and vampires have just, if you'll pardon the expression, enjoyed this renaissance with all of this, the, the Twilight Saga and Buffy being so campy on television and the Vampire Diaries, I mean, blah, 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 blah. But your book goes back to the origins of the vampire legends. Let's give our listeners just a little bit of an overview, because if I'm not careful, I'll just start jabbering away. At you. <laughs> um, well, sure. The fun thing for me is that among all of these vampire stories, if there is a vampire Bible of some kind, this book, Dracula's Guest, is Genesis. This is really where it all started, where what these vampires were doing before they became such unlikely uh, international celebrities. It's vampires in their youth. <laughs> and we were, um, were able to trace the actual origins of the modern vampire story back to the very first story. Um, it's not like ghost stories where they go back 5,000 years. Uh, so that was really fun to look at some of these, that Lord Byron um, basically launched the whole genre um, in the early 1800s. Just wonderful stuff. I was so surprised to see the Lord Byron story and was stunned that Tolstoy has actually written a vampire story. I had absolutely no idea. Well, this is this is Alexei Tolstoy, who was the cousin of Leo. Well, um, but, but even was... so, that Tolstoy name, I mean, I thought, and this, it's not... When you hear the Tolstoy name, you expect that crime and punishment kind of book, you know? And yes, this, this is a wonderful story. Oh, it's wonderful. And, and uh, Alexei Tolstoy wrote um, very literary um, novel and, and poetry and, and essays, and this is a very unusual, uh, wonderful story for him. 
And there are so many from the era that are, uh, well, it covers, of course, from the, the launching of the whole genre um, and a little bit before the genre was launched, because by genre I'm really referring to vampire fiction. But I start this because the stories grew out of the peasant folklore of Eastern Europe. I start this with some stories allegedly true uh, from uh, accounts in the late 1600s and, in, and 1700s that give you the background. This is what Byron and John Polidori, his physician and hanger-on, um, worked with to begin with uh, to launch the genre of vampire fiction. And so you get this raw ore that was the peasant um, superstition uh, in which people really believed the, their relatives were coming back in the night as, as the undead and taking away someone else from the family. Wow. I mean, that's, can you imagine in that day and time, I mean, when night was night, it was so dark you could, literally could not see your hand in front of your face and noises and things that happened in that dark were different than the dark we have today, I think. Yes. A few years ago when I wrote a nonfiction book called Apollo's Fire about the day from dawn until nighttime, I looked at what nighttime was like um, before the industrialization of lighting, uh, beginning really mostly in the early 1800s. And so in this same era that these stories are appearing, we have the Industrial Revolution moving these superstitions farther back in time in a way and making them more antique uh, because a lot of the things that enabled you to be more afraid at night were going away. Um, urban areas were better lit. Uh, transportation was uh, becoming much more reliable. And so these isolated pockets of rural superstition were beginning the process of disappearing that is just about complete today, it seems. Tell me a little bit about the very first story, because I think that's maybe that's a place that we should start in the book, because you do start with that very first vampire story, and then you carry it on through to probably the most famous, dare I say the word, vampirist of all, Bram Stoker. That's the the ending story in the book, or the ending chapter in the book. Yes. Um, okay. Of course, I, after the first couple of allegedly true stories, uh, we start with Lord Byron. And the wonderful thing about this is that, in a sense, the ancestors of Dracula uh, early in the century emerged from the same evening, the same week in history, and the same group of people as Frankenstein, because Lord Byron was at the Villa Diodati in, uh, in northern Italy and in 1816. And Percy Shelley was there with his uh, not-yet-wife, with Mary Godwin, who would soon become Mary Shelley. And Polidori, Byron's hanger-on, was there, and they were all trapped indoors a, a great deal of the time because of the horrible weather of 1816. And which first in, of all, can you think about these people in a room by themselves? Can't you just see them in your mind, laying oh, around in front of the fireplace? Oh, yes, the descriptions of it. They're reading um, this French ghost story collection called Phantasmagoria, and they're reading it to each other in French. And um, Shelley and, and Mary Godwin um, are willing to participate in all this. Paul Dory and Byron uh, are talking. And Byron says, we shall write a ghost story. And this launches 
what led to Frankenstein and everything else because Mary Shelley, Mary Godwin, was having trouble coming up with an idea, and she had a nightmare um, and that led to Frankenstein. And Byron wrote this fragment of a story. It's unfinished. Um, it's enough to get a very strong sense of atmosphere. And it's never had a title. Um, it's, been, it's called Fragment in some things because it was never, never quite finished. I use a phrase from the story uh, and call it the end of my journey. And uh, Byron writes the first vampire story. And then later, Polidori, who was present that same time at the Villa Diodati, writes his own story called The Vampire. And he, between the two of them, they take all of this peasant folklore and, and give it this aristocratic decadence kind of uh, approach to it. And you, at that moment, you see superstition becoming the fiction that will evolve into this gigantic vampire myth that we have flourishing all around us now. You know what occurs to me? And I, I'm going to confess something to you, Michael, that I've probably never said out loud to very many people. I used to be an English teacher and, <laughs> and loved it, but I did not particularly enjoy the 17th century. I looked sure. at this book and I thought, wow, if I were still in the English classroom, the thing that we taught in in school at the time, we taught all of the poetry of, you know, Byron and Shelley and, uh, you know, all of the major poets, and we, we approached them from the poetry standpoint. Sure. Uh, poetry is wonderful and beautiful, but it's I'm, I'm a literature kind of person. I would take this book in a heartbeat and bring Byron's story into that classroom those kids are so into the whole vampire legend. One of the assignments I might give them is to finish that story because I wanted that story to be finished when I read it. And I turned uh, yes. the last page and got to the bottom of that page. I thought, what? This is it? Yes. I, I wanted Byron and to have finished it, and he didn't. I love the idea of students having the assignment of finishing it. The book has already been picked up by some colleges in the U.S. and in Canada um, because I designed it to be uh, about one semester's worth of historical context and introduction to vampires. I mean, I, don't, I didn't do it as a scholarly text, but I thought while I'm at it, I can do this in a way that will be useful to students and professors. Uh, but I love the idea that some of them would have as the assignment, finish the story. Oh, yeah. I mean... And they're so into this stuff. I think that by using this whole idea, uh, you would hook them in a way that they might otherwise otherwise be elusive about. Because let's face it, you know, kids are not all that uh, excited about literature and English and those kinds of things. Of course, some of them are, but sure. getting the mainstream kids involved. And boy, I mean, this just jumped out at me as what an opportunity to utilize this. Well, I originally included um, a number of the early poems that included references to vampires. And we decided to take that out because it seemed suddenly more like the Norton Anthology of Literature mm, than yeah. like a really fun, lively, enjoyable story collection, which is what I wanted to do. Because I'm not a, an academic. I'm an anthologist along the side of being a nature and science writer. So I wanted it to be what I envisioned as the most fun possible. Well, another Fun thing. I loved 
Varney the Vampire. <laughs> I loved it that he was originally attributed to Thomas Peckett Prest, and that name may mean nothing to some of our listeners, but he was the guy who originated Sweeney Todd. But he's not really the person who wrote the story. Yes, yes. I, I love that he's attributed, it's attributed for a while to one person, and then they go, no, no, it's a different person in that sort of same stable of writers at the time. And Varney the Vampire. I just, <laughs> I just Varney, I loved it. Uh, Varney the Vampire, which sounds terribly like Barney the Dinosaur nowadays. Um, <laughs> it was a collection that ran weekly. I mean, it was a, a series that ran weekly for two full years. And it was it's interminable. I admit I have never read the whole thing. I know numerous people who are interested in the early days of vampire fiction, and not one of them has admitted to, to ever having read the entire Varney the Vampire. But I mentioned in there that it, it holds a warm place in our hearts in an Ed Wood sort of way. Yes. Because it is so over the top. Yes. And so shamelessly... Um, Exploitive. What? Excuse me? Exploitive. Oh yes, yes, it has. It it adds to the genre the now requisite screaming blonde. Um, it it was very. It's very much. It was a dark and stormy night kind of opening. Yes. Um, so I include only chapter one to give readers the flavor of it, but it's just something I don't think you want to miss. It's it's more over the top than even like the Hammer vampire films from England in the in the fifties and sixties. Yes. Uh, with Christopher Plummer and all of those. Um, it's very much um, the peak of the melodrama, and then after that, and it, but it was very influential, and um, some of its elements uh, show up all the way down to Dracula. It became, I mean, as I read this, of course, the very last paragraph of that first story is—it's just the perfect old-time vampire movie scene. Yes. I mean, it shriek after shriek in rapid succession. The bedclothes fell in a heap by the side of the bed. She was dragged by her long silken hair completely <laughs> onto it again. I, I mean, it just is this wonderful scene. And think about the excitement of of the people who were waiting with anticipation for this week's Varney adventure. Yes. I mean, yes, it must yes. have just been, oh, 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 physical almost for them. It must have been so exciting. Yes. It was very much, and it was the era in which uh, Dickens was, uh, he was already established, he was already writing uh, things such as um, the old Curiosity Shop, where uh, it really seems to be completely true that as uh, episodes were shipped across the Atlantic, people were waiting on the dock in the U.S. to find out what happened to Little Nell and and the other characters. And so there was no TV, no radio. There was there were serializations of stories were the best way to, to hook readers. Um, and just like, I think it's the parallels are interesting. They appear a, a piece at a time, then they're bound into, at that time, usually a three-volume novel. And the same way that now you watch episodes of a TV series and then you get the whole thing on DVD. Yes, exactly. Um, and the analogies are very interesting because this this was the hot new medium at the time and the scandalous stories um, that now you get, you know, you turn to True Blood or something. 
And I think one of the things that I enjoyed so much about this is the manners, the the way the stories are told. You and I both talked about. I'm I'm just one. Of, my imagination is far too good. And reading um, some of the the horror. I can't read horror fiction. I just can't because it it just stays with me for days, and I won't watch those kinds of of films because they just creep into my head. But the way that the Victorian stories are written, there is a a certain manner, and and I hate to use the word gentility, but I'm sort of struggling for a word to, to say that these are stories with manners that reflect a time in our society that was very different from our own society. But at the same time, there's violence present in the story. Yes, yes. And some of it um, is quite explicit, and then a lot of it is obliquely presented. It's just barely off stage. Um, and I do love uh, the tone of voice of a lot of Victorian-era writing. Mm-hmm. I've read a ridiculous amount of it. And I keep returning to a number of people from, from Dickens to Robert Louis Stevenson to George Eliot. And I love the sense of language, uh, the texture. And it's a completely vanished era. But because the novel was becoming a big deal at the time, um, we have so much of this texture recorded. Because when Byron um, and the others were fooling with, with fiction, when Mary Shelley was writing Frankenstein, the novel was still very much a, a looked-down-upon uh, upstart, that really only poetry was, was where a, a true aspiring literary artist would turn. Um, so you see throughout the story of this, uh, the stories in this collection, you get to follow the growth of fiction itself as a hugely influential medium in the world. It's very exciting. I've been, I've been jabbering at you the, since we poked the button to start recording our interview. <laughs> yeah, I know, because I, I'm so captivated by what you've done, and I enjoyed the stories, the collection so much. Is there something that you would like to say specifically to the listeners about this book? Because I, I just think it's so interesting, and I want us to be able to hook them in. I want them to understand that this is something that they will enjoy because it's it's the origins of all of the things that they're seeing now. And to look at those things, another idea for doing some kind of comparison and contrast, to look at the Victorian vampire stories and, and what do you see, what are the elements, how is it presented. And then fast forward to 2010 and 20, 2009 and look at how the Twilight series is presented. Uh, what's the difference? What are the common elements? Uh, I, that just fascinated me. But I said I wanted to let you talk, so I guess I'd better be quiet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, this is good. This is good. Um, it's interesting to me. I did an interview with Irish Radio a couple of weeks ago, and the gentleman mentioned the intensity of the vampire fervor now. And did I find that uh, interesting or... Uh, do, I, do I feel that vampires have sort of been watered down? And I said, no, I feel that the excitement and fun about it is that something about this myth, to use the general term, the idea of the undead, has really stayed with us. And something that fascinates me about it and that shows up through all of these stories is, in a sense, the idea of a sort of credit, a divine credit, that instead of 
accepting the fate of all the rest of us mortals that vampires, instead of turning in their own life when they use it up, they will turn in the life and the blood of someone else almost as a form of credit. And with that, they're then still able to hang on. Um, and that urge to not let go of a life, even to the level of being trapped in this horrible state of being undead, it, it appeals to people more than the idea of quitting, of giving up, of fading out, of disappearing. And for me, I think one of the fun things about this in reading it was how popular vampires were long before Dracula. That in 1897, when Bram Stoker published Dracula, he was, up to a point deliberately, pulling together a number of different elements that were already out there. And I was really surprised to find things such as in 1888, when Jack the Ripper was rampaging through the, the night in London, newspapers were saying this is too horrific. It can't be a human being. The image that comes to mind is some horrific vampire. Oh. I mean, it was already the stories were coming out. And Karl Marx, 30 years before Dracula, Karl Marx was writing that de uh, comparing capitalism to vampirism. Uh, and he said, dead labor, which vampire-like, lives only by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more wow. labor it sucks. And so the the imagery had already completely captured people's imagination. Um, and then you culminate in Dracula. And what I have in here is um, Dracula's Guest, which ends this collection, is a, a short story that's really a chapter that never made it into the book. Um, it's an early form of one of the chapters of the book. Um, so it's been, for me, really fun just to see the way the myth grows and grows and grows throughout and then ends with this last story of, that was actually Bram Stoker. And it's just so amazing to think about the fact that an image, a myth, a theme, if you will, in literature has come through from that early, even before Victorian literature, all the way through to modern day without a break. I mean, we went right through from the writing about vampires to something like Nosferatu, which was, you know, one of the early vampire films. And it oh, just goes great. all the way through this. And I find that absolutely astonishing. We have to stop. I hate to stop this interview, <laughs> Michael. The book is just wonderful. I always enjoy talking with you. You're just Thank such you a so captivating much. person. Thanks for being my guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Thank you. It was great fun as always. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.